0: Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast.
1: In this two-part case, we are joined by Dr Robert Edis in Perth, Western Australia to discuss the neurodegenerative disorder motor neuron disease. In the first part, we review the pathophysiology, investigations, presentations and important mimics of this condition. Hello, my name is Josie Mayer. I'm a neurology registrar, a training registrar working at the moment in Perth, Western Australia, but based in the UK. And today I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Robert Edis, who's a consultant neurologist with extensive experience in leading a a multidisciplinary team um, for patients with motor neuron disease. And he's also vice president of the Motor Neuron Disease Association of Western Australia. So good morning, Dr Edis.
0: Ah, hello Josie, nice to speak to you.
1: So just to outline the case, this is a 65-year-old right-handed female who is presented with difficulty walking. So she notices her right foot was weak about four weeks ago, and this is slowly getting worse, and she's now finding it difficult walking up the stairs. There's no pain or any sensory symptoms. Her family report issues with her behaviour. In particular, she's become more emotionally labile, which has been a change from her usual disposition. She has a history of type 2 diabetes and takes metformin for this. It's well controlled. Her father died at the age of 60 with pneumonia and possibly had an undiagnosed neurological condition. Her examination reveals wasting fascic- and fasciculations of the right thigh and wasting of the tibialis anterior. She has mild proximal weakness in the lower limbs with moderate weakness of knee extension and ankle dorsiflexion. Her knee jerks and ankle jerks are brisk. In the right leg, her plantar is extensor. The patient is concerned that she might have motor neuron disease. But Dr. Edis What would be your
0: approach to a case like this? Uh, Well, I'd like to uh, clarify a couple of things um, prior to to, um, going further with this. Um, In terms of the uh, emotional lability, uh, is there any more detail about that? Uh, Is there any other hint of cognitive impairment of memory or uh, or is this just... um, a change in her emotional threshold
1: from what the family described this is just a change in her emotional threshold so she's been more tearful particularly when watching tv or when she's has um relatives
0: um that's quite interesting because sometimes people do present with uh, emotional ability and they're aware that their their emotional expression or their threshold for ease of crying when they feel they really shouldn't be they feel slightly sad but then they find themselves crying or they laugh at a lower threshold than normal it can be an expression of a, a, a upper motor neuron involvement of how one ex, uh, expresses emotions and so-called pseudobulbar affect or emotional ability. And it may be a symptom, but it, it can be something that you can ask for, particularly if you think that there is some upper motor neuron involvement as part of a motor presentation where you might be suspecting motor neuron disease, uh, again, you can say, have you noticed that there's any change in, in your uh, threshold for, for um, ease, ease of crying or ease of laughter? And um, people will sometimes say that. Uh, and again, it can be a helpful um, uh, symptom in, in terms of giving support for the diagnosis. Uh, and it's of interest that she was concerned that she might have motor neuron disease. And again... Uh, do you know where she got that from? Occasionally people will, will Google muscle twitching or and then uh, the term fasciculation will come up and then lead to motor neuron disease. So I've had people who have Googled uh, muscle twitching and, and then led to the suspicion of MND. More likely they've, they've had exposure to a neighbour or... Someone in uh, some acquaintance or someone else they know who has had motor neuron disease, because it's become a bit more widespread, well known in the community now. Where Stephen Hawking and other figures, um, such as a, a prominent football, Australian football player in Australia, has now given more publicity to motor neuron disease. So it's been, become a bit more evident within the community now, and um, uh, a bit more well known, I suppose. But if if they've had personal experience of it um, with um, a neighbour or someone, uh, they they pretty much know that that if this is the diagnosis, then it's irreversible, pro- progressive, and and uh, uh, virtually a death sentence. And it colours um, uh, how they're going to to um, view their future. Uh, in in a way, it's a bit. Helpful for us that that someone has uh, that suspicion, where we can again explain the diagnostic process uh, as to how we we try and reach more certainty with regard to that diagnosis, and then they'll be uh, maybe more willing also to accept um, the interventions that we can we can offer. The examination is obviously very important here and. A mixture of upper and lower motor neuron signs. Um, so, upper motor neuron signs in, in both legs with brisk knee and ankle jerks, right plantar extensor, a strong suspicion of uh, upper motor neuron signs, particularly with the presence of reflexes or brisk reflexes in the presence of a, an adjacent lower motor neuron involvement of the quadriceps, where one would have expected that the knee jerk, uh, if this is Purely lower motor neuron would have been depressed or or absent, so we've got fasciculations in right thigh, wasting uh, in the tibial centurion and that uh, relates to her symptom of weakness or, or foot drop, which is one of the more common presentations of um, motor neuron disease, um, such as uh, which happened to to Stephen Hawking. His first symptom when he was about 19 or 20 was was A problem with walking and uh, dorsiflexion of his foot, and so we have the mixture of uh, upper and lower motor neuron uh, signs in the legs. It doesn't look like there's anything definite with regard to fasciculation in the arms or trapezius, or any trouble with speech or swallowing, despite the um, uh, emotional ability. Uh, so the jaw jerk was not increased.
1: So the rest of the examination is normal, the jaw no. jerk was normal, right?
0: Okay. Yes, so certainly um, there would be uh, some anxiety about uh, this mixture of lower motor neuron coming from uh, what would seem to be uh, lumbar nerve roots rather than lumbar sacral plexus, probably, and then what would appear to be uh, most likely spinal cord in- involvement, um, perhaps higher up, uh, but uh, we'd appears that the uh, there were no upper motor neuron signs affecting the arms that you would be you were convinced of. Um, so approach to diagnosis here would be to to admit that there is a possibility that this might be motor neuron disease and that further investigation and but that other other conditions need to be ruled out, particularly involvement of the spinal cord with one of a number of pathologies. again, The more difficult diagnosis, particularly before MRI scanning, was cervical spondylosis, where there's spinal cord compression plus cervical nerve root involvement, where there might be fasciculation and weakness involving hand or arm muscles, but also a degree of spasticity, C78T1 and spasticity involving legs, where there's this mixture of Upper motor neuron in the legs uh, with upper and lower motor neuron in the arms due to a cervical myelopathy at, say, C5-6, which would need to be excluded. Here we've definitely got what appears to be a lower motor neuron lumbar involvement, but I would still get uh, a um, full spinal cord MRI scan to look at um, a possibility of syringomyelia, for instance. Um, or a multifocal cervical myelopathy, less likely ischemic event with the diabetes mellitus, perhaps, giving upper motor neuron spinal cord problem and lower motor neuron involvement. So, certainly, a full spinal MRI scan is something I want to do. I do creatinine kinase looking for. Some slight elevation in that associated with the lower motor neuron involvement, and crucially, here uh, a uh, nerve conduction study and EMG examination.
1: Although they're presenting with a mixture of upper and lower motor neuron signs, we can't be definite that this is this is a, a diagnosis of MND at the moment. So they need further investigation. So um, the the imaging of the spine is really important. Um, a CK is important. You mentioned that it can be elevated.
0: Yes, so very commonly with with, um, significant lower motor neuron involvement, the CK will be elevated, but usually uh, only into the hundreds, but not into the thousands. So it's of interest. Certainly it's more important if there's no indication of upper motor neuron involvement and it's just a presentation of weakness where, again, differential diagnosis of something like an inclusion body myositis, which often involves the quadriceps muscles and finger flexors and extensors, but usually more symmetrical than this sort of presentation and without fasciculation is in important differential diagnosis. So creatinine kinase in that situation is important, although in those cases, again, it may occasionally be normal or only mildly elevated, but if it was into the thousands, then that would be much more of an indication of, uh, mm-hmm. of a potential myositis. But the, the EMG here, and needle examination in particular, in this particular case, very important in terms of finding that there, there may well be um, involvement of the left leg with lower motor neuron involvement, particularly in the, in the tibialis anterior in this particular case looking for involvement higher up in in abdominal muscles or in thoracic paraspinals, and whether there's an indication of subtle denervation in in arm or hand muscles or the trapezius or sternomastoid muscle, where uh, if one finds clear evidence on needle examination of a more widespread low motor neuron involvement, then this really, uh, in in the presence of um, this particular progressive clinical syndrome of of uh, upper and lower motor neuron involvement um, really supports highly supports the diagnosis of motor neuron disease so the finding of of needle exam lower motor neuron involvement elsewhere in clinically apparently normal muscles or questionably weak muscles can be incredibly helpful in in uh, diagnosis of uh, of motor neuron disease
1: What's happening with, you know, at the level of the muscle, the, you know, the
0: brain, what's happening in MND? Since the discovery of the C9-ORF, we've become aware that that, uh, motor neuron disease uh, quite often has a significant cortical involvement. So in the families with C9-ORF genetic forms of motor neuron disease, the most common genetic form, uh, within those families, there Maybe people who will manifest uh, as frontotemporal dementia alone, or frontal te- temporal dementia with motor neuron disease, or motor neurone disease alone. So it's clear that motor neuron disease uh, can be a spectrum of uh, cognitive impairment or purely all the way to purely motor uh, impairment only. And when one tests a whole cohort of people with motor neuron disease, we'll find that about 40 to 50% on a relatively simple cognitive uh, test uh, will show um, particularly frontal uh, lobe cognitive problems. Um, And this has led to a concentration of of further investigation of the role of the cerebral cortex, where it's now been demonstrated that the cortical frontal areas, particularly the motor strip, show a level of um, Motor hyperactivity or hyperexcitability on paired transcranial magnetic stimulation above that which one finds in the normal population. And so, the most popular theory of the most common form of motor neuron disease, that's amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, the mixture of lower and upper motor neuron signs, that ALS phenotype and about 85% of people who present with motor neuron disease, that this cortical hyperexcitability on transcranial magnetic stimulation is almost invariable, and where it leads to the idea that the disease starts in the cerebral cortex in those patients, and that the hyperexcitability of the cortex can lead to muscle fasciculation through one-to-one communication with anterior horn cells and corticomotor, pathways and where it may be that through that hyper excitability that lower motor neuron exhaustion and cell death then begins to occur as a secondary event this is uh, a number of theories about um the pathogenesis but this is this is the most uh current hypothesis that that uh, most people accept
1: so you mentioned something called c9 Mm orf um can you tell us a, a bit more about that? And do you think that could be relevant in this patient who's got like, this possible family history? They've died of a pneumonia, and there was this query whether they had an underlying neurological disorder?
0: Uh, it, it, it might be. Um, and so, uh, about 40% of people th- who have um, a definite family history of, of motor neuron disease, and it's almost always autosomal dominant as inheritance. Um, will have the c 9 um mutation. Uh, SOD1 mutation, the first um, gene associated with uh, MND, was discovered about uh, in 1993. And so there's now about 30 at-risk genes that are available on a gene panel to be tested for. Um, some people believe that this should be available to all patients who present with MND because about 7% of so-called sporadic cases where there's no definite family history will show one of these gene predispositions, uh, mutations being uh, present. We, we, in fact, don't offer that. We only only do genetic testing if there's a family history um, and if the uh, after uh, initial genetic counselling that um, the... Uh, family members at risk wish to know the diagnosis. Uh, Now, clearly, if if we have more specific treatments for the subtypes of MND, uh, then this will become uh, much more important. Occasionally, with lower motor neuron presentations alone, um, gene testing can be diagnostic. So, for instance, in some families with SOD1, a gene mutation, the present presentation may be of a very enigmatic, slowly progressive lower motor neuron involvement, particularly of the legs. We are, again, I can remember one case which caused diagnostic difficulty for years until the SOD1 gene was tested for and was proven to be positive there being no previous family history of, of this disease.
1: So possibly genetic testing at the moment with a strong family history, but until we can find targeted treatment, it's not you know, necessarily relevant for all patients to have genetic testing.
0: No, because it has all sorts of implications. Yeah. So uh, particularly with regard to insurance, there's those who want personal insurance, there'll be a question saying, uh, have you got a genetic disease or have you had a genetic test? So it it, it could be uh, financially disadvantageous. The other problem is that although these are uh, autosomal dominant genes, they are at-risk genes, so that not everyone who has one of these mutations will go on to get motor neuron Mm -hmm. disease. So their penetrance is not quite as severe as, say, for instance, the Huntington's gene, where, again, uh, the penetrance is very high. So if one has it, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get it There there seems to be a number of environmental factors that one has to be exposed to, to accumulate sufficient molecular damage that then trigger cell death. And those environmental factors have proven to be uh, somewhat elusive. So um, the only proven factor, which is not particularly strong, is that if one uh, is a smoker, you're more at risk. but uh, things like active war service uh, has, again, been recognized by, uh, by the Australian Defence Forces, for instance, that if one has been in active war service, then statistically, in epidemiological studies, your risk of MND is greater than, than if you've not been in active war service. So that actually leads to um, the possibility of a pension. <laughs> um, uh, but then other other factors, uh, such as exposure to certain toxins from plants or from algae, or uh, again, there seems to be curious uh, connection with uh, athleticism, so that the more athletic you are, the the greater risk you are of, of developing MND. So this is particularly so with elite uh, Italian soccer players for some reason. There are going to be more, um, perhaps better controlled and more extensive environmental studies coming up shortly
1: the patient um, that we're talking about today has has um, presented with a initially it sounds like a foot drop she had a right leg her right yeah. foot was weak and um, what types of presentations can we see with motor neuron
0: disease well limb presentations would still be the most common so again uh, i can recall people who the initial presentation was a man who had difficulty pegging the clothes out on the line because of weakness of pollicis longus, or a flute player who couldn't get his uh, little finger out o- along the flute as well as he-, he could, or another person swimming found that their interossei were weak and couldn't keep their hand cupped in a posture of, of swimming. The-, the football player I mentioned previously, Neil Danaher, was accused by his football mates as having a girly handshake because of the weakness of his hand um, as an initial presentation. So, <clears throat> hand presentations definitely when some skilled act or uh, uh, similarly with with running, the story of people catching their foot with dorsiflexion weakness is, would be the most common in in the f- foot. Um, otherwise, it's a bulber presentation, uh, usually with um, speech dysarthria as an initial presentation particularly picked up on the telephone by by relatives someone might be accused of being drunk through some sort of uh, mild dysarthria and slurring of words uh, more than dysphagia dysphagia as an initial presentation is much less common than than uh, dysarthria so usually a focal onset of presentation and so th- that presentation of a mild dysphagia or dysarthria or an isolated foot drop or an isolated hand involvement from lower motor neuron, is much more tricky than the case that we've presented with. So it's not not uncommon for people to have to go through a limbo period of uncertainty, uh, where it's difficult for the doctor, for the neurologist and difficult for the patient. And we have an Australian motor Neuron disease registry where we've followed over 2,000 people now from diagnosis onwards, to a significant number of them uh, to death. So we know the natural history, we know the phenotypes of 2,000 people now over 10 years or so. And we're still the average time from symptom onset to confirmed definite diagnosis of motor neuron disease is around a year. Okay. It can be made on initial uh, diagnosis, where there's widespread fasciculation weakness, progressive history, no decent alternative uh, differential diagnosis. Um, But very often this focal presentation, particularly just lower motor neuron presentation, um, can be the more difficult one, which leads to a period of limbo particularly also presenting with speech disturbance where the person may be seen by an ENT surgeon uh, and then not referred on, uh, or someone who has a foot drop with an MRI scan showing an L5 nerve root, apparent compression, having surgery, and when the person doesn't improve and gets worse, the penny drops that this is a progressive disease. Very rarely people present uh, with respiratory involvement as their initial uh, symptom. In fact, we've had several cases who present to the emergency department in respiratory failure, admitted to ICU as their initial presentation of MND. But fortunately, that's very rare.
1: A wide variety of presentations um, there, so it can can be tricky. Um, Are there kind of different types of uh, motor neuron disease? You mentioned ALS earlier.
0: So, so motor neuron disease is a term that was coined by Lord Brain. Uh, prominent british neurologist in the 1960s in brain's neurology and so it's it's a a, a english and australian um, umbrella term embracing all of the varieties of motor neuron disease als is the uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis is the uh, is virtually used as a synonym, and, and so that in the United States, for instance, there's the ALS Society rather than the MND Society, and where ALS is a an umbrella term again to embrace all forms of the disease. But in traditional British and Australian neurology, we would refer to ALS as the mixture of upper and lower motor neuron signs and symptoms involvement. Uh, in 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 our uh, registry, for instance, about eighty five percent of our patients will will fit that particular phenotype. There are um, other less common phenotypes of progressive muscular atrophy, where this is predominant lower motor neuron involvement without clear clinical involvement of upper motor neurons, and where. This persists throughout most of the disease or, or up to almost the terminal phase of the disease. And where it may involve um, the cervical spinal cord creating flail limb variety of the disease, where there's progressive lower motor neuron paralysis of the arms almost to the form of flippers where the person loses function in the arms but are able to walk, breathe, talk, speak, quite normally or near normally with minimal involvement elsewhere. And where that progression to other limbs will take a lot longer and where uh, their average length of life is likely to be eight to ten years as opposed to the two and a half years uh, of length of um, life from symptom onset in the als form of the disease and the most um, rare variety is primary lateral sclerosis where this is a, a bilateral upper motor neuron presentation and where again prognosis is very much better, but only about 5% of our registry uh, is represented by, by that particular form of the disease. When one looks at these primarily lower motor neuron forms or upper motor neuron phenotypes pathologically, you, you can find that there is upper motor neuron and lower motor neuron involvement pathologically, but it's minimally expressed clinically.
1: What's uh, would you say would be the important mimics um, for patients who are presented with weakness fasciculations like an MND phenotype
0: well certainly in the old days it was cervical spondylosis with spinal cord compression and uh, so low motor involvement of spinal nerve roots giving uh, fasciculation weakness in the arms upper motor neuron signs maybe in the uh, lower myotomes in the arms and in the legs but MRI scan has now helped us, although occasionally uh, the degree of compression is questionable and again it's going to be a matter of time and observation where again the provisional diagnosis might be one or the other of cervical spinal cord compression and uh, root involvement or the beginning of an evolution of motor neuron disease and where again one might have to then just wait uh, over the course of time for it to become more clear syringomyelia was the other one which was uh, where there may be a serpentine syrinx all the way down the spinal cord involving but most often involving spinothalamic tracts as well uh, to give a clue to to it uh, not being MND but occasionally that that has mimicked uh, motor neuron disease but again will be found on MRI scanning. I guess the most a common thing we have to be wary of is a more symmetrical presentation of a slowly, slow-onset weakness, approximately particularly of quadriceps and knees giving way plus some weakness in the hands over a matter of months to years of inclusion body myositis and uh, where again uh, there's no clear upper motor neuron signs but a more symmetrical weakness and where uh, the CK may be normal or only minimally elevated and where Um, the EMG uh, interpretation, again, can be quite difficult in that particular situation. If it's a more focal presentation, then one's got to be aware of multifocal motor conduction block neuropathy as an autoimmune inflammatory or autoimmune disease, which picks out multiple uh, nerves with, with predominantly motor expression, and where there may be sensory involvement on nerve conduction studies, but not expressed clinically. And where again, it might be an unusual nerve such as the musculocutaneous nerve, where the biceps may be involved, for instance, with fasciculation and weakness, and a suspicion that this could be the onset of motor neuron disease, um, uh, or uh, a median and ulnar or radial presentation, um, where again, the, the clinical clues are the fact that the weakness seems to be restricted to a peripheral nerve and multiple peripheral nerve distribution, and where nerve conduction studies, with that in mind, have to be uh, critically performed to see if there are conduction blocks at points away from compression points of the nerve. Occasionally, this can be more proximal in the uh, plexus or nerve roots, and where the suspicion of a progressive lower motor neuron syndrome not totally conforming to what one would think would be motor neurone disease uh, and no hint of upper motor neuron signs will lead to the possibility of this being a multifocal motor conduction block neuropathy and where a trial of immunoglobulins may be given over three to six months of further observation to see whether one can stop the progression and lead to that diagnosis and the occasional wins are had in that particular situation.
1: So now we've got a, a strong suspicion of MND, mm-hmm. um, so this is a really tricky tricky and difficult part. Mm-hmm. How would you go about discussing this with the patient and their family?
0: Well, I think you just have to be honest about uh, what the findings are and where we're up to and, and how how we make this sort of diagnosis. So you'd explain the nature of the particular symptoms and signs, indicating that there is an, uh, a clear, well, fairly strong indication, well, of lower motor neuron involvement confirmed clinically and on EMG. Let's say we didn't find evidence of more widespread uh, lower motor neuron involvement on the EMG. We're now left with a more focal um, progressive lower motor neuron syndrome in, in the leg with a hint of upper motor neuron. And again, one would just have to say, well, we've ruled out spinal cord compression or other, or syrinx or other problems by our investigations. We haven't clearly indicated that it's uh, a more widespread problem with the needle examination and sampling of muscles uh, elsewhere, but that there still remains the strong suspicion that this could be the beginnings of motor neuron disease, and one has to just discuss that with the family. Um, Perhaps uh, one might explore the history of the father's undiagnosed neurological condition. Is there any further documentation of that? And if that's declared as a possibility of MND, then it might lead to further investigation after discussion of uh, a motor neurone disease genetic panel uh, in the patient uh, to see whether one can detect one of the at-risk uh, MND genes. But beyond that, one would just have to say, well, look, um, I need to keep you under review. And we need to understand this over time to see what the nature of any progression is and whether there's clear spread of this disease elsewhere involving the body. And uh, one, one might offer the opportunity to go on reazole as a treatment with a provisional diagnosis of probable MND, but one might hold off depending on uh, what the family uh, and the patient wishes to do.
1: Thank you for listening to the first part of this neuro podcast on motor neuron disease. In the second part, we will discuss further developments in our case, the management of motor neuron disease and how doctors can approach delivering the diagnosis to patients and their families. Case notes and links to the organisations discussed in the cases are available on the website neuropodcases.co.uk
0: Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk.